welcome back once again to that is effing weird we have a special interview that we are going to be going on what will we be doing today before we get into that we'll introduce the host and then we'll introduce our guest i am alex one of your hosts i am clark i am seth (laughs) we always get that kind of we get the timing always messed up but we're good we're good to go and then clark as well (laughs) i already said i'm Clark. Well, yeah, you and you and Seth. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's well, a it's we, a mess we, over here. Yes. Nevertheless, our guest is here. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, everybody. This is Simpson Sneed, and I guess I am the guest today on Effin' Weird, which is Effin' Cool. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, I thank, like that. Yeah. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, you're going to talk to us a little bit about your career, things that you've done. Um, so we'll we'll get right into it tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do well i'm a filmmaker i'm one of those guys where if you go down to la go into any crowded room and then throw a rock you will hit someone who is me uh (laughs) i am the director writer producer one of many of us who are just trying to make movies nice awesome awesome so like you're saying that like what is it though (laughs) <laughs> what what has been your experience so far, you think, with just like being down there and then, you know, what what has that been like for you? I got to say, it's been great when it hasn't unbelievably sucked. So I've been working in film the better part of 12 years, how you do the math for it. In that time, I started off doing everything, background, being body double. That's how I would get myself onto bigger sets. When I wasn't on bigger sets, I was DPing for short films and small projects on the side and all that time it was always trying to gear towards doing my own bigger stuff with direct things like that i mean that's kind of the joy of working in film though depending on the type of gigs gigs you're willing to do you can find yourself on some of the biggest projects out there albeit in small roles and you can learn a hell of a lot from it of course it's also you know great walking into a room of 200 people and knowing you're the most expendable person in the room so like it's a it's been great when it hasn't sucked. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> now, you said you were you, you <laughs> not said a lot of a, in between. You said you were a, a body double. Yeah, I uh, bodied. I uh, was a body double for God. I'm spacing on the guy's name. A pilot for a show uh, from this sportscaster. He uh he insulted. He's the guy who got famous for insulting some football player, and the guy just beat the crap out of him on television. I body doubled for that guy way back in the day. Um, I don't want to trash talk him, but it's good. I can't remember his name. I also did stand-in work, so I sit in on uh, workaholics. And when I wasn't doing stuff like that, I was doing background. Like, my first ever background gig, my first official job in film on a real set was doing background on community. Oh, Oh, shit. Oh, yeah, if you watch the Gay Bash episode, you'll see me as one of the gay dancing guys. Ah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll keep a lookout for that. And something that we, uh, we, uh, we need for the show for some of these visuals, if you could send us a picture of, of not, not necessarily that scene from, that, uh, <laughs> from the show, but like a picture of you so we can put that so people can have a, a face to a name so they can keep their eye out for you, that'd be great. I can, I'm happy to send that, but I got to say, I don't think anyone is going to benefit from seeing out that scene. <laughs> I am to this day convinced I was miscast. 
So they're trying to do the kind of gay stereotype thing where all it's all these incredibly handsome, good-looking, muscly young men. And then for some reason, in between all these handsome, good-looking, muscly young men, you have me looking like the bloody cripper. I was <laughs> unhealthy I ever was in my life. I have visible bags under my eyes. Okay. I look like I'm, I'm a few hours away from death. To this day, I think I was cast by accident. <laughs> but it like but don't you want that don't you want something that looks a little bit more real uh, you know i can't speak to whatever their casting decisions are but community is a great show so clearly they were doing something right so who am i to so the uh the next question that we actually have for you and i think you can speak pretty well on this too is there is a uh tell me if i'm wrong but this is a, it's a book that is what is real science is crazier than science fiction correct um a book i don't i don't I mean, the statement is certainly true, but I'm not familiar with the book. Ah, okay. All right. Uh, can you yeah. – so so talking a little bit about that, though, that was one of the questions that we were going to ask you. Can you speak on that? Absolutely. It's, so I, I think the miscommunication there, that's something I frequently argue that real science is crazy science fiction. But that, that's not a book that I wrote. Although now that you bring it up, I should write that as a book. <laughs> the thing about science, and one of the reasons I love to incorporate it in science fiction, is the real stuff is wacky. Like, especially when you get into advanced particle physics or when you start to deal with planetary studies, the three-body problem, this is stuff that's nuts. I, uh, the most recent film I just did is Tim Travers and the Time Traveler's Paradox, and a lot of that film is spent digging into the real science behind time travel. And for the record, there is real science behind it. Now, the thing about it is all of that science explains why time travel is completely impossible. But there are actual mathematical formulas that go into why it's possible. And when you start getting into the ifs of it, it's mind-blowing. And it goes way beyond the whole, but what if I kill my grandfather question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love what this if stuff. I did kill my grandfather? Have you ever read about what happens when you get a tidally locked? For example, how you'll get a planet that's a functionally three different perpetual ecosystems with a nuclear storm going on at the equator all the time because of all the pressure that would be happening, being pushed from the hot to the cold side of the planet. And all that stuff, there are actual planets like that we know of. That's what I mean when I say real science is so much crazier than, hmm, but what if the machine feels love? So I, I, I agree with you too, because if you, if when just like talking about planets and everything, just like the, uh, there's plenty of YouTube videos where it shows what your body would do if it made it through certain atmospheres of every single planet. And it like, there's like ice storms and like the pressure, if you could survive it and then like how high you could jump. It is insane to think about that stuff. And you know, there's now that I think about it, there aren't too many movies that actually, actually like incorporate some of those, you know, crazy planetary real science things into their movie. And that actually would be pretty kind of refreshing to see maybe sometimes like that. Aspect. I mean, I could be, I could be wrong. I, granted, like there's, you know, like Prometheus and, um, you know, uh, what's the other one? Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I, I Total Recall. Well, yes. I I think of Interstellar as a good example of a film yeah. that does it. Now, I'm enough of a nerd that I'm still focusing on the stuff Interstellar does wrong, but it does a lot more right than it does wrong. 
Yes. Like, uh, like, like a black hole is a three-dimensional. Well, I was also thinking... Well, like, yeah, part, well, with the black hole. Okay, so all the stuff they do with the black hole in Interstellar. Spoilers on a 10-year-old movie, by the way, to anybody listening. But at the end of the <laughs> film, he goes into a black hole. And all the stuff about him going in, that is dead-on right. And it was so cool to watch that realized visually. Now, what upset me is I wanted to see inside of a black hole, whereas the movie does the cop-out at that point and creates the magical multidimensional space that allows him to look into a child's bedroom and communicate with her, which mm-hmm. is a beautiful moment. I love the movie. It's a great scene. But while the mathematics of that type of three-dimensional space are really interesting, or sorry, four-dimensional space are really interesting, um, that is emphatically not what you would find inside a black hole. You would find okay. crushing death is what you would find inside a black hole. I had a uh, a question talking about Interstellar because it's one of the first things that I actually thought of when you were bringing up time travel and stuff. That's that obviously Interstellar deals more with like time dilation, but when it comes to time travel, do you think the science is more of a like actual linear thing within one universe, or do you like are a proponent of like a multiverse thing where if you change something, you are now somewhere different? I'm not a proponent. Of, I am a proponent of the multiverse, but not in the movie context. So let's take a moment and define multiverse. A multiverse in media is defined as the alternate versions of you. Here's me, but here's me doing this. Here's me, but in this world, I'm a cowboy. In this, in this world, everything's the same, but I'm wearing a sombrero. That's the media version of multiverse. And I do emphatically reject that. Where I do believe in a multiverse, and there's ample good evidence to support this, is the idea that there are multiple universes. But where they would be different was that they, is that they would have fundamentally different laws. I mean, literally, take math, mathematics. One plus one equals two. Why? That is something that just happens to function that way in this universe. But in a multiverse, the most basic fundamental laws of reality would be different between multiverse. So in that sense, I support that. Uh, Less the media sense. Although, in fairness, I don't really have any strong evidence that I can disprove the media version of it, except to say that the media, if that makes sense, it feels a little too narratively convenient for me. And one of the things I've noticed in science is science is rarely, if ever, Just a quick question. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you beautifully. Am I coming through all right? Yeah, we had just a little bit of a glitch, but we 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 did get the last part of that. <clears throat> I'll I'll edit that out. Um, I I think I understand what you mean though. The 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 kind of the meme of there's all these versions of you, but in reality, I I think what you're saying is that uh, math there would be multiple universes. They would just operate differently mathematically, and you nece- not nece- you wouldn't necessarily exist in those alternate you know universes. Yeah. Humanity wouldn't necessarily exist. The ability exactly. to have physical matter wouldn't necessarily exist, or at least yeah. not physical matter as we understand. Yeah, gotcha. I mean, take uh, the beginning of our own universe. Most of the matter in our universe was destroyed at the beginning of the Big Bang with antimatter collided with, well, normal matter. But there was a slight difference of how much there was. There was slightly more matter than there was antimatter, which is why there is still a universe today. But to which I ask, why? That seems like incredibly random good luck. That there's yeah. just a little bit more matter than antimatter. So when you think about all of this stuff, 
And do you, so the, like the, oh, I, I'm going to butch their, the name. I'm going to, it's Tim T- Tavellers. <laughs> so that's the film I just came off of. It's Tim Travers and the Time Traveler's Paradox. And it's actually yes. fun that you guys are asking about these uh, science questions. Because what we're talking about right now is very much what the movie is about. Uh. And see, like, I, I watched clips of it. And, like, especially, like, the, uh, what is it, the the meeting or the boardroom scene is hilarious. I love that scene. Um, if you, the audience member, I highly suggest going and watching it, taking a listen to it, you know, on YouTube and everything. It's it's great. Um, but, like, w- when you talk about, when we're talking about this stuff, do you, do you try to shoot to put some of this stuff into your films, too? Absolutely. It, it, to me, it's the reason to make film. Like, mm-hmm. part of my own narrative voice is I want to explore ideas I find interesting. There's no point making something like Tim Travers if I'm not get to explore these ideas everything else the humor and the stuff like that that's all the icing on the cake but these questions are the reason the film gets made okay now would you want to so now now talking about like the genres and everything would you want to try to make a movie that is more serious or a thriller horror or anything or do you feel like where you where you're comfortable is like the comedic route with the serious aspect of, you know, science fiction, real science, meshing those all together. That's definitely my comfort zone as a filmmaker. But don't get me wrong, I would love to do more serious dramas and stuff like that. And I have done a few, just not as mm-hmm. Yeah, Tim Travers. So the short film you guys watched, we actually yesterday locked picture on the feature film version of Tim Travers. Hey, there you go. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and while it's very similar to the short of its subject matter and humor, the mm-hmm. biggest fundamental difference is it, there is an actual serious emotional story being told. It does change okay. fundamentally between the short version and feature version. And that stuff I would love to play with more. But my comfort zone is science fiction, um, those kind of Futuramas, Red Dwarf. Those are truly my happy place writing. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I love that. Now, now, where can uh, the audience find uh, uh, Tim Travers in its entirety? At the moment, nowhere. It's not available online unless by request. (laughs) So I gotcha. So at the moment, nowhere. Um, I took it down last summer because we were going into production feature and I didn't want floating around out there when we're going to be also selling oh, but at some point i might re-release i might re-release the short online for free down the road as part to help raise awareness feature at some point but yeah. that's luck okay very cool so sorry guys we're going to talk a lot about a movie that you can't watch <laughs> <laughs> well that's fine it just gives the, everyone the opportunity to actually watch the feature film which that would you know, that would be pretty cool to uh get a get a look at that um impact like films that impacted like what kind of films do you think impacted your your career so when you were talking about your comfort zone is like comedy science fiction what sort of films growing up did you watch or you know partake in that you feel like kind of like moved you in that direction uh, i think one of my first films that i truly got into as a kid was definitely men in the original men in black oh, yeah. it is such a gold standard 
of kind of old Hollywood in the sense that its film is everything. It's got it's a mm-hmm. great comedy. It's a great sci-fi. It is legitimately frightening without jokes when it wants to be. It has a villain who is just terrifying. And when it wants to be serious, it's serious. To me, a good comedy is one that isn't calling itself a comedy. Um, like you go to see, it's a film that takes itself internally seriously, but it has a great sense of humor about it. And the ideas it's exploring, while not scientific, it's all based on kind of mocking conspiracy theories, it does internally take itself very seriously. And it explores those ideas in good faith. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna pause real quick. You you brought it up, so we're we're gonna go in this direction. Conspiracy theories. Okay. One of the questions that we'll get right back into your we'll get right back into Men in Black. Trust me, I'm sure we have a lot to say about that. But one of the things that we wanted to ask you was, do you believe we went to the moon? Yes or no? Trick uh, question. Okay. Trick question. And here's why: because whether or not you believe in something is irrelevant. We did go to the moon. It's testable. It's evidence, and there's literally tests you can do. I, I put it this way. If I were to step out the window of a 10-story building, it doesn't matter if I believe in gravity on the way down. I'm heading down. We went to the moon. True, but all right. Yeah, I have something to counter Several. that, right? Because I, 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 love, like, I, I love looking into conspiracies. Alex, Alex has to get this out of, off his chest. He, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> pardon me. He just has to. <laughs> And trust me, it's not that I, I believe that we didn't go to the moon, but there's all there's I think it's fun to look at conspiracies to scratch your head and say, like, the what if like, oh, they bring up a good point during these. Nevertheless, right. Um, the conspiracy with going to the moon. So something that uh, people point out that when the uh, the whole moon landing was the uh, the shuttle landing on the moon. So they they say, like, you look at the footprints. Right. And when one of the astronauts puts their foot down it makes a clear imprint on on the surface but why does the shuttle not have any like space debris or not space debris but like the uh, surface of the moon when the shuttle landed there's no like blowback from like moon dust it's just set there perfectly and and why in the museums do the astronaut suits that they claim were on the moon have different foot patterns on the bottom of their feet and how did they get filmed back through the van allen belts without a modified hasselblad i mean come on you gotta think about it (laughs) well let's address the first of those straightforward if there had been blowback that would have shown that it was fake because for a simple reason there's no atmosphere doesn't matter mm. how much how much energy the engine is putting out, just no medium for which that to pass through, that's not going to touch the mo- surface of the moon. So there's okay. no atmosphere for it to pass through. Okay. What yeah. about the film? You wouldn't, you wouldn't get anything. It's like waving it's like waving a fan at it. There's no medium for it to adjust. As to the others, I can't dive into it. But here's where conspiracy theories they're fun except until they stop fun. Like right now, we're dealing with situations where people are no longer willing to accept basic fact and evidence. So while I think conspiracy theories can be fun to read about, there is a point where they are doing a societal harm. There is a point where we are uh, doing harm to our culture intellectually by not by indulging. Now, okay. I, 
I it, I would agree with you on that one, and I don't mean to like you know hurt anyone's feelings, but some a, a conspiracy that I, I probably will never jump on board with, or like you know I think it, it's kind of perfect. And I'm sorry if you are one, but flat Earth, it's I think it does more harm than good. Um, it's I I don't understand. I think there there was a documentary where um it was like even even some scientists at NASA I think or it was. They were saying like, hey, we need to poke fun at flat earthers, but try to, you know, inform them of like, you know, the earth really is round and spherical. And well, that dude died. He he like made his own what? rocket ship. He made his own rocket ship and and tried to get proof. And uh, it, I forget it, it was his own design. He was out in Nevada, I believe. And he went up a certain yep. height, and there was engine failure, and he died. So there's there's a good example of harm, like he was saying. Yeah. Although, on the other hand, one would have to wonder with that gentleman, you know, at what point is this just Darwin work? <laughs> hey, do they still have the Darwin Awards? Do they still have that site up and running? <laughs> I'm sure they do, although I imagine it's probably a lot less popular these days. That's I mean, that's the sort of mean sense of humor that I enjoy, but it's not exactly in vogue, dude. Uh, I remember that in high school. We get on there and check out the kid that, like, bit a grenade. <laughs> oh, God. Well, like with, like with the flat earthers, for one, it's like, take the moon landing one. That's one where, let's take the points you were bringing up before. That's a thing where a person who knows what they're talking about can sit down and actually go through and explain each one of these and why they're not true. With the flat earthers, they give you their theories, and I don't even know how to respond to it because it's uh, so far off the map of rationality that it's like, where do you even begin with that? Yeah, at, yeah. at least the moon, with the moon landing conspiracy theorists, there are actual points that it's like, all right, let's talk about why you the footprint would do this. Let's talk about why the landing would do this. You can actually address the point. But yep. with flat earthers, it's just like, what can you do but throw up your hands and stare at and stare at and stare? Yeah, yeah. I, had, I, I, had a rumor, I had heard a rumor that the flat Earth movement was started by someone who was just trying to prove a point that they could get people behind them, and it actually was a up. It was supposed to be what? like, yeah, pretty much a like like the Pastafarians, like the religion thing, where it's like I can oh, get. Oh yeah, I, I that's what they I had heard. But apparently yeah. that person was the victim of his own success then. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Became the monster you created. <laughs> but getting getting back yeah, like, to uh oh, go ahead. Oh no, no, I I, I was just laughing. Uh, uh but just getting back to uh the men in black, I, I would a hundred percent agree with that movie is like everything kind of encapsulated into one something that i really do like that um i feel like a lot of you know movies nowadays kind of lack on is the actual visual effects of creatures now granted yes in men in black they do use cgi but there is also those monsters that they use that are the real like the puppeteers like the the movie the thing for instance with kurt russell oh yeah no no CGI whatsoever, all puppets, mechanics, all of that stuff. And it's such a great movie. So that's something that I like to see personally in like a sci-fi movie is like the actual creatures. How are they? What are they? Because I feel like something that's kind of bad nowadays is the overabundance of CGI. I, 
to, to jump in on that, I'm not sure that the overabundance is more that it creates room for laziness. So let's use John Carpenter's The Thing, for example. I've actually got mm. to see the puppet that they used to make that film, and let me tell you, it looks awful. It looks absolutely <laughs> awful. They did not have the budget to make the monster look good from every angle. So the way that puppet worked in that movie, all the different puppets, is you would have a handful of angles that it would look great. But you had to do it at just those angles. Angles. So what it would do is it would force the filmmakers to polish the hell out of it. So when you have just this one way to look at the monster, they're going to make it look great. They're going to light it great. They're going to be patient. And there are a lot of CG stuff today that looks great when people are patient. But a lot of the time, especially on the lower budget stuff, people will use CG as a crutch, as an excuse not to put in the extra time and labor. Men in Black is an, another wonderful example of this because they mix it up constantly. There are sea monsters in it. There's tons of puppet monsters. But when you get to the cockroach at the end of the movie, who's pure CG, they mm -hmm. put a ton of work into that. And they spend the whole movie building to it, and they do a great job. So CG, yep. I'm okay. I'm fine with when people aren't using it as a crop. Okay, that's that's fair. That's a good that's a good point. Now, for for you being a filmmaker and everything, what I guess where would you? It I guess so for because also something that I've heard is CG CGI is just so much more inexpensive, whereas like the actual puppets making all of that it can get super expensive like we were saying like the time and labor so is this something where you want to like if dealing with the sci-fi realm would you like to use more practical effects or do you like to use that cgi or kind of like men in black like a mix there needs to be a good mix in like for the two i'm not at all convinced that cg is cheaper in fact a lot of the time it can be more expensive it is certainly mm -hmm. cheaper to do cg below a certain budget level so let's take uh Let's take the, my film, the Tim Travers. This is a relatively low-budget movie. The type of puppetry I would have access to for something like that would cost me beyond the production budget of the whole film. But if I were just a slightly bigger film, let's say something in the $15 million range, that opens up the kind of doors and access that I would be able to access the same stuff that the best people in Hollywood can access at that budget range. At which point the difference between that and G financially becomes a lot more marginal. I think the reason it comes up a lot is the folks who really feel the difference are the folks like down at the indie scene, where we just don't have access to tools for a lot of it, whereas we do have access to CG. Hmm. Okay. And and that's I would say that's pretty true now because you look at. Uh... You look at AI, right? For instance, like that used to be something that was, you know, only certain companies, you know, certain groups had that. But now you can go online, you can go to any app store and you could download whatever kind of AI you're looking for, you know, whether it be for, you know, art for like a thumbnail on a video for it to help you write, you know, come up with ideas, come up with quotes. It's, it's, it's just this huge realm of, you know, it being available. So I think CGI, I think it's, it's relatively out there for people to, cause so if you take, for instance, Jurassic park, um, when, um, Steven Spielberg was toying with the idea of, all right, should I use puppets? Should I use claymation or should I use this new thing, CGI? 
and he went for it and used CGI, he took that time to really focus in and making these dinosaurs look as realistic as possible for CGI being so new. And I think he hit it like right on the head with it looking really well for the time being in the 90s. I think it was really nice. And he only used it for a couple of scenes, I believe. Well, and here's the other thing that he did with this, and this is something I would love to see more filming do. He mixed it up constantly in Jurassic Park. Sometimes mm. the dinosaurs are CG. Sometimes they're a puppet. They mix it up with physical props because the idea is you stop noticing when it's there and when it's not, and you just accept that's a dinosaur. You mm -hmm. just accept it as it is in the world. Uh, in the Tim Travers short, for example, with all the Tims sitting at the boardroom table, we did several <laughs> different types of effects. Because the idea was, after a certain point, you'll just stop noticing the effect because you mix up which one you're doing shot to shot. Sometimes yeah. it was a split screen. A lot of the time it was body doubles and lookalikes. Uh, we even did the occasional facial replacement. If the story pulls you in. We had to take that to a far greater extreme. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. I can I can see like if you're if you have a storyline and uh and a path you're going down. If it if it's pulling people in and investing them in the story, I could see my brain kind of switching off the analysis of of the actual quality that I'm seeing between digital versus puppeteering versus body doubles versus whatever. If it's if I if I'm pulled in and it's great, then uh I my brain forgives it a lot a lot more. Exactly. I mean, the goal of every effect, every filmmaker, would be for you to not notice the effect. Unless that's the joke. Unless it's deliberately a bad effect and you're playing it as a joke. But nine times out of ten, if the audience is paying attention to the effect and not the narrative, you've already screwed something up. Right. Something that this kind of reminds me of uh, when you're talking about this with all the different Tims is something that they did in the, not the latest Matrix, but I think it's Matrix Revolution, um, where all of the Agent Smiths on the side of the road, they, like it's like the last fight scene, they used uh, some body doubles, they used some like mechanics, and then they like, they made, I forgot the actor's name, but they made a bunch of his heads, masks, and they just, yeah, they just put it on uh all of those people and it was you didn't you didn't notice it in in that scene i mean granted like yeah cinematography what's going on around the rain that all helped but even those close because there was a couple of close shots of that street scene where they were getting all of those faces and you cannot tell what is real what is fake and i think they did a really good job right there and same thing with the the boardroom scene with you i honestly i thought it was all split screen i i, I didn't know because i mean that's the only i'm not a filmmaker I, I don't know i don't know how you would do that so that's actually really cool to hear that you used body doubles a couple of different methods for your film yeah uh, with that scene it's both so it's actually three or four different split screens but every third tim is actually a different actor who's just hiding his face, like they have the face and hand, something like that, so that that way he can physically interact with himself. Because with split screen, you can't touch yourself, is the issue. And mm. one of the simplest ways you can sell people on it being real is to make it where the actor touch the other, where one Tim can touch the other Tim. Now, I got to go back to what you're just talking about with the Matrix there. Uh, just pulling it back to the title of the podcast, can you imagine how freaking strange that must have been for Hugo Weaving? Imagine being <laughs> on set, hundreds of actors, 
all of them wearing masks of you with professional <laughs> makeup teams trying to make it as real and believable as possible. Like, that's some being John Malkovich nightmare fuel right there. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I just I just wish Fat Morpheus was in Resurrections. I, I mean, I, I, just, I just want him back in that. I mean, he had time to do John Wick. He could totally pop in for Re- Resurrections. Yeah, I think he's having more fun with John Wick, though. And say what you want against the Wachowskis, but they keep to their own. The reason he wasn't back is Morpheus was canonically killed off in the early aughts PlayStation video game. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, Matrix Online storyline. So, yeah, I have heard that. I've heard that they are very, uh, they very much kept to the Matrix Online, Path of Neo, Enter the Matrix. All of, all of that stuff is canon to them. Yep. Yep, they, they kept to it. So, it, it, on the one hand, there's a part of you that wants to go, come on, yeah, come on, gals, nobody cares. <laughs> on the other hand, there's a part of you that goes, that's got to respect the dedication their own nerd you know oh absolutely yeah yeah now are there any other movies before we move on to some of the other questions that you think you know had an impact growing up that you know affected your film career not a movie uh, a tv show which more than an impact it is the dna of everything that i love in this world and that would have to be red dwarf that okay. to me is the perfect low budget it's all about the writing every spaceship on it is very clearly just a factory because they have so little money to work with it's spaceships on strings and it's all just the writing and character that carries all of it i am not not with red dwarf it is a british sci-fi comedy that started in the mid 80s and basically they'll make a new season every couple years and it's still going they had their most recent season back in 2020, and that's wow. from starting in the 80s. Yeah, they, I think they've done 13 seasons and a movie overall. I think I've seen some of the older what? episodes, like t- two or three of them, and I think I do know what you're talking about. I think it was on Hulu at one point. It was, it was, and it was on Netflix at one point. Uh, it's, it, it's on, it, it's pops up every now and then because it has a small but decidedly loyal fan base that includes but that show because it was written in part by people who were and the entire premise was what if you had a show like Star Trek where it's going to be a group of characters who encounter real scientific ideas and what if those characters idiots (laughs) instead of the best of the best what if it was just the most incompetent morons ever that's who's encountering it but the ideas they're encountering are often real ideas now because this show goes back to the 80s most of it's been long since bones but it was stuff that what people were taking seriously at the time that seems like a really good show i i i had i have never seen it i have never heard of it but it kind of reminds me when you're talking about that it has like a doctor strange type feel to it because it's still going on and they just changed the doctor just to keep the show going yeah. now do they do the same thing with uh the uh this, oh, it's, this the uh... Same. it's the same cast no way yes it is entirely well here's the premise of the show it's about one guy who's aboard a space station so big it's the size of a city called the red dwarf and okay. breaks a law 
and he's put in suspended animation for the remainder of the voyage. So he's going to be losing 18 months pay. That's like their version of jail because, you know, it's all employees on a spaceship. It's, we're not going to put you in a cell for 18 months. We're just going to freeze you and you forfeit a lot of, and you lose a lot of money. That kind of makes sense as the way you would run a for-profit spaceship, right? Yep. Problem is, while he's in suspended animation, a nuclear explosion goes off, kills the entire crew. <laughs> and the computer has to leave him in suspended animation until the radi- radiation reaches a safe background level. So Dave Lister is unfrozen three million years later as the sole survivor of the entire human race that has gone extinct. So the whole cast is just him, the computer, a hologrammatic recreation of his dead roommate, who he hated and hated him, (laughs) and a creature that evolved from a house cat that there was an entire house cat civilization that evolved (laughs) over the millennia. I'm getting I'm getting some uh, Venture by Brothers robot, by a robot. <laughs> I'm getting Venture Brother vibes. I love it. Oh, Venture Venture Brothers quotes the show. There are direct references to Red Dwarf. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Now, Red Dwarf is one of those shows that's been around long enough that anything that that deals with sci-fi comedy, if you look for it, you will find the occasional reference. I'm gonna cue that up. That's on my list now. Yeah, right. We're we're oh, yeah. down. Yeah, he sold it. <laughs> oh, even I think there's a clip in one of the more recent Doctor Who episodes where you see a field of spaceships, and if you look closely, one of the spaceships is the Red Dwarf. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so they even reference it. That's awesome. Oh, they directly like they've had a lot of cast overlap. Almost the entire cast of Red Dwarf has been on Doctor Who at some point or another. Speaking of crossovers, I don't know if any one of you knew this, but in the movie Spaceballs, uh, like at the end of the movie, uh, when they're at like the diner, the Millennium Falcon is parked outside the diner as well. So there, there's theories yeah. that the Spaceball universe and the actual Star Wars universe are in the same <laughs> in the same world or in the same universe i thought that was pretty cool as long as lucas gets paid oh. <laughs> well indiana, indiana jones and gave them permission to do the film uh mel brooks reached out to him for doing the film and lucas mm-hmm. only condition was you can't make action at toys of the stuff in it uh, yep. that was his only condition but no they did it with lucas's blessing and they i think lucas actually loaned them a few props prop shots <laughs> that's kind of cool. oh that's awesome <laughs> you yeah. can't sell toys but no, I, I love spaceballs my god my love of science fiction comedy still goes deep if, if i'm gonna allow you to just sit here and pitch a few shows i'm i know you guys love your own but the best podcast out there is mission to zip it is a okay. sci-fi comedy that's been running for five years they just wrapped it up and it's one continuous narrative across five years Holy uh. shit. Oh, yeah. At, at least each episode's an hour long. It's, if, what they do is they improv every episode, and then they clean it up with sound effects and edit it down so it feels scripted by the time it's done. And it's just the funniest damn thing you're ever going to look I'll check it out. With a, w- with a surprisingly What's... heartwarming finale. What's uh... the name of it again? Mission to Zip. 
Z Y X X. Okay. Okay. We're gonna definitely look and into that. Now you... to this podcast. Go subscribe to Mission to Zix right now. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, stop listening to that stuff and weird. Go over there. Listen to that. <laughs> no, just just subscribe while you're listening to that stuff and weird. And there you go. Up next. As soon as this conversation's done, you can be queued up for the first episode. There you go. I've got now, a. Uh, stick... uh, go ahead, Clark. Uh, how do you feel about the anthology series, like Ray Bradbury and Twilight Zone and things like that? How much of those were? Like, I mean, obviously, I think a lot of people, especially friends of mine in the industry, were really, like, inspired by those. But how do you feel about, like, anthology series like that? I love them, and I think they're great. And I think we need more of them because one of the joys of just getting to do what I do is I get to go to a lot of film festivals, and I get to see a lot of world-class short films, and I get to see a lot of B short films as well. There's not a lot of audience. For that sort of content and yet it's some of the best and most precise storytelling you'll find a lot of the time because it's so lean to the point a little 10 20 film and anthologies are basically the only way to do that type of storytelling in a wide market so i okay. love anthologies any any excuse that lets people enjoy these short tight little stories uh love death robots is my boo yes so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much we only got uh, Black Mirror now. I mean, in terms of like a big show like that. But yeah, Love, Death, Robots, that's, that is some good stuff. Oh, yeah. And we also get, well, I mean, we get a new reboot of Twilight Zone every couple of years. True, it, so. true. I even enjoy the occasional anthology feature. Although I do think if you're going to have a feature film of anthologies, you do need some connective too. Yeah. Like, a, a really good example was Ballad of Buster Shrugs. That was really good, because yeah. e even though none of those shorts are officially connected, there is a clear Western theme and tonal theme across all of them. That's mm -hmm. watch. Yeah. And yeah, I might, I might get a lot of... Uh, Cohen Brothers, those guys can do no wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I might get a lot of hate for this, but I actually... Um, recently, the American Horror Stories, the anthology... I kind of enjoy that more than these seasons of American Horror Story. Now that's getting off of sci-fi, going to horror, but that's that's kind of my hot take. I actually enjoy that. I think your hot take is pretty damn cool because <laughs> it's joyous to watch anthologies. We need more of them. They're great. For uh, for when we when we talk about films that kind of inspired you, are there any films that you know you just hated, but you could still draw some you know something from those when you're making your films? I would say all of them, because this is just, and this is when it comes to kind of part of the craftsmanship, even truly bad films can inspire you to make good films. Tim Travers, which you saw, was a direct response to a bad time travel film. I was at a film festival. I saw this time travel film that was frustrating me so much. One, because not just because the science was wrong. I mean, the science is wrong in Back to the Future, and that's still great but because the characters were idiots. These were characters who had discovered time travel, but were still focusing on getting their classwork done. It's like, get your priorities straight. You're about <laughs> to be richer than Elon Musk through the <laughs> classwork. You've got, you have God powers. You're literally <laughs> a God. <laughs> and it's totally nuts. And literally all of Tim Travers was born of me wanting to write a character who would respond in 
So I would say every bad movie you see is probably doing something right somewhere that you can learn something from, or at least something that can inspire you. I think that's really good. I, I, I do. I do like that. You can, you know, take even, you know, a bad film. It doesn't have to be a good film and you can take stuff from that and you can see like, all right, no, this is, this is how I would, you know, describe time travel, or this is how I would describe dinosaurs or whatever it is. I think that's really cool that you can take, you know, stuff from both sides and make it something your own and something that you would enjoy. I think that's pretty cool. Absolutely. And it, it, to me, it does the best sort of art. To me, art could be in dialogue with itself. Like whenever I hear people complaining about a movie or something they don't like or something they found offensive, my thought is always the same. Make a movie or an art piece that does it the way you want. Rather than criticize a thing, improve things. Show your Mm -hmm. take. If something doesn't address a conversation you want it to be addressed, address it. Do it. Let art be in dialogue with each other. Um, uh, Solaris is a film that was made because of how much the director hated 2001 A Space Odyssey. And he felt that 2001 focused on all the wrong things, and so he made Solaris because he wanted a film like 2001 that focused on what he felt it should have focused on. Yeah. From the best... Yeah, so to me, that I always want to see art respond with more art. And I think that's kind of important, too, that you, you're saying it's it's an art, too. And I think sometimes people for, forget about that. It's like, yes, it can be entertaining, and it should be, but it's, it is it is an art form. Like acting, all of this stuff, it's it's an art, and it takes talent. And almost like what you were saying, too, um, with just uh, just like actors in, in, in general, too, like it's – that'll make – I feel like will make or break – a film and how they, you know, portray what you're trying. And that's got to be hard as a, as a director in doing this stuff is in your mind, you have what you want to put out on the screen and like what you want people to see. And it just getting an actor to be like the perfect, what is in your mind. That's got to be challenging. It is incredibly challenging. Although the, but it's also incredibly rewarding. There's very few things as exciting as writing a character, being so confident who they're going to be, and then having your actor show up and just prove you wrong, make that character better. So with the Mm. feature I got to work with, uh, so I'm actually allowed to talk about this. Uh, We had Joel McHale in the feature film version of Tim Travers playing a role, and there was entire scenes he was just improving, where the stuff was coming up. It was a it, it was a nightmare to edit down. (laughs) to work with but there were very clear bits where it was he's gonna go till i call cut basically Mm -hmm. and he took what was to me a fairly functory character on the page he plays a uh a a supporting role in the film and -hmm. just made the character into something completely different and more dynamic to the point where i barely remember that original character as i scripted him that's just joel now yeah so let, let, let me ask you then, what, what is the most challenging part uh, for you working on these, like whether it be a short film, feature film, like what is the most challenging part, whether it be the actors, you know, getting your idea out on the screen, like what, what, what hurdles do you think you've, you, you've faced that, you know, that are challenging for you? The most challenging part is the part that's most challenging for all indie filmmakers. And unfortunately, this isn't even a fun thing to talk about. It's money. It's not mm. art 
not getting to work with your friends, all those kind of challenges are interesting. No matter how much work you're doing, if you're getting to be creative, it's going to be fun on some degree because it's problem solving. Whereas raising the money, just getting the film started, that's mind-numbing. It's boring. It's joyless. It feels defeatist. That is the hurdle every indie filmmaker who's not independently wealthy is struggling with, which is just getting the is just finding the tools to even do the job, and all that's happening before you even get to do the job is just trying to find the money to afford the tools. That's the most soul crushing part, and that is the thing that trips up most filmmakers. That that is our great barrier, so to speak. Because yeah. even those of us who are able to find a way to push past it and find the money, we usually never have enough of it. And so we're having to very rig solutions. At a certain point, it's like, all right, what if I can't afford to do this effect, but this effect was what was going to carry this entire scene? Like, imagine how would I have done Jim Travers if I was unable to do split screen? If every single shot had to just be in over the shoulder of a Tim? it would have fundamentally made the film probably unwatchable. So if I had not had the money to afford that effect, I would have had to seriously doubt whether or not I could even do the film. That's a, that's a good point. And it's, and I think that's, that's probably one of the, probably another challenging thing is just trying to pitch your idea to someone to get the, those, you know, to get those funds. That's gotta be challenging too. Like I, I, I've never done oh, it before. Yeah, like terrifying. how, yeah, where do you like? Where do you go? Like, how do you? How do? You, what's the process like for that? What do you? How does that? How do you start that? Yeah, basically, you just find people with more experience than you are on the producer side. I have a great producer I work with called Ben Yenny, Uh and he is my main guy who goes out and for me. So his, so he's been at this about ten years, and whereas I'm the production guy, he's the finance guy. So he okay. goes out, he finds money. A lot of the time, we'll find creative ways to get to the money. So one of the mm -hmm. things that is frequently done is what's called a pre-sale. That's where you'll get a studio, based on your pitch, to agree in writing that they're going to buy your movie upon its completion for, let's say, $3 million or something. Even though you don't have that $3 million, now you've got the guarantee of that coming in later, and you can actually take that to various financial groups that fund films and they will back your movie based on that pre-sale. Like, it's basically like a home loan. Yeah, but okay. the danger there okay. is if you don't finish your movie, the studio doesn't have to then buy it, and you owe somebody $3 million. So, you know, <laughs> make sure you know what you're doing before you go down that realm. That's, uh, that's some student debt you don't want. So, okay, so I'm starting to understand this a little bit more. So let's say, like, you needed a camera or something, from wherever and it's like all right hey i have the backing of this studio yada yada uh can i use it or have this camera for let's just say two thousand dollars whatever and they're like yep and you don't have that money but as soon as you movies complete you give two thousand dollars of that three million to them as payment uh, not, not quite not quite like the, oh. the group that's going to give you the three mil is literally a bank so they want collateral think of it like taking out a mortgage on your house so they okay. want collateral and because a reputable studio has given you a pre-sale that agreement from the studio serves as the collateral it's the equivalent of your house so you're actually getting cash from that bank like your three million dollars but you owe it back to them as soon as the studio puts up the money to buy the film with interest 
So if the studio is giving you a pre-sale for three mil, you probably only want to take out a loan for 2.5 because the way the bank's going to make its money is it's going to want interest on that. Okay, so God. is there like a lean, like for instance, is there like a lean on the script or whatever the rights are to something in case uh, the studio doesn't buy it? Or are those pretty ironclad contracts before the bank ever gets involved? Yeah, that's very ironclad. So that's the okay. reason the bank is willing to get involved is because it's ironclad. So gotcha. the moment you have a pre-sale, they own your film once gotcha. done in writing. Gotcha. And if you fail to deliver, uh, they can take you to court for it. Likewise, if you do deliver you can, and then they try not to give you the pre-sale, you can take them to court. Although more realistically, it'll be the bank that takes them to court because the bank wants their money. Gotcha. Okay. Now, in, in, so, in your line of work, are, are you seeing – I gotcha. In, in your line of work, are you seeing more um, um, independent filmmakers buying their own equipment, getting bu- buying like a cheap metal building – uh, you know, warehouse esque kind of thing, and and trying to kind of have a lot of the stuff already, you know, ready to go, and then seek you know different sources of funding. But you know what I mean? Like, are they more and more? Because I mean, you can get a Black Magic camera relatively affordable with the you know and and have good quality. I didn't know what what was going on in that kind of realm. Yeah, for a lot of folks, unless you're planning to do it as a business and you're renting stuff out to groups it's really not practical to own a lot of this stuff because for significantly less money you can rent better stuff like for the cost of buying a black magic camera i could rent a venice 2 which is arguably the best camera in the world right now that's what they shot recent top gun on for less money mm. than what it would cost me to buy a black magic mind you i have to have a bigger right. insurance yeah, that policy, makes sense that is a extremely expensive camera mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense that, may, that makes sense like if you if you're going for if this was something you're gonna do and you're going for the slickest like the best quality and reliability i cost versus that it it would make more sense to rent in certain cases yeah but a lot of folks do do exactly what you're talking about because they are making this uh working for other folks when they're not making their own films their full-time job and okay. more power to them. I rent from them frequently. Okay. All right. Well, that answers my question. Thank you. Yeah. One one last question that I think that I have um, for you is when we're talking about movies and everything is that you actually have one that you're you're trying to get off the ground, and I don't know if we can talk about it or not, but uh, the movie The Dogs. Uh, the Dogs is actually a graphic novel that is we're, we're shopping around for publication. It started as a screenplay, and okay. I shopped it around to a few major studios, ever got nothing but uniformly positive feedback, always with the note that it would never get made because in spite of people really liking the script, it would cost over $100 million to make the thing. And for an unknown director, unknown writer based on a story no one's ever heard of, that's just not going to happen. So what I did was I hired a fantastic artist, uh, Marco Consentio, and we put together. And I worked with Steve Stern, the uh, author behind the Zen in Galactic Space Jeff comics from back in the day, and we turned the whole script into a graphic novel, which is being shopped around to p- publishers right now. And if any of you are listening, let's talk. Nice. <laughs> That's awesome. You, you heard it here. 
Netflix, yes, watch please. out. God, it's... <laughs> yeah, the, the artwork is great, and I'm really excited to see this print. So. Oh, that, that would be awesome. Yeah, let us know when that thing drops. That would be, that'd be sweet. Uh, hopefully sometime this year. We're still uh, shopping around as we speak, so. Okay, perfect. Well, I'm yeah. sure, like like you said, you had a lot of positive feedback from it, so I don't, I don't see why why it wouldn't you know hit the shelf soon. Absolutely. So that's the hope. But right now, we just got to get some. But as any author will tell you, uh, getting through the phase of getting uh, that first project off the ground with the publisher is a deep uphill battle. It's an achievable goal, but it takes some time. I personally love graphic novels, but uh, have you seen it like in your mind as another medium? Like, would you want to see it as like anime or would you want to see it as like live action? I would, in the perfect world, I'd like to see it as a film. It was always intended to be a live action film. And even in the graphic novel, it is structured very much like a story so that you get that sense visually. In reading the graphic novel, you would get what this movie would look like and why it would be so prohibitively expensive. It is something that would also work with, like, a good anime team behind it uh, that could do the action well. But I do think live action would be the most desirable. Now, do you think <clears> – <throat> I know you said you want it's going to be turned into a graphic novel. Now, is this something where there's going to be multiple – like, is it going to just be, like, one and done? Or do you think there it has the, it has the possibility of being, you know, volume two, three, four, and just continuing? It has the possibility, but it wouldn't be volumes. It would just be – it's a standalone graphic novel. It's not a collection of six comics put together. Okay. So it's, it's, yeah, so it's not a trade. But okay. if the graphic novel does well, there's no reason it couldn't have sequels. There's a lot of places I would love to take these characters and explore this narrative further. But mm -hmm. just in my own writing style, I structure things like a movie. So to me, it would be good old-fashioned sequels. Okay. Yeah, franchise that shit. <laughs> that's, the, that's the goal i want yeah. some of that money yeah <laughs> well steimson i think that pretty much has all that that and you know answers all the questions that we had uh seth clark do you have any other questions before we uh sign off well i would just like to ask if you could uh give out the social media that uh, you'd like our listeners to check out or anything like that just uh let us know I would love it. And if you guys are all listening right now, you can find me on Instagram. I'm easy to find, just Stimson Sneed, the one that's got a bunch of pictures from movie sets that are all mine and not a single meme to be seen. Or you can <laughs> find me at my incredibly anemic Twitter, which has all of 20 followers because I haven't tweeted in several years. But, you <laughs> know, you I yeah. might tomorrow. Who, know, who knows? Maybe <laughs> if I get some followers, I'll feel compelled to not ignore this thing. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. My Instagram, well, though, is where I'm actually active. And if you want to actually communicate with me, that's the way. If you want me to actually, you know, notice you exist, if you reach out, Instagram's the way to go. Okay. Perfect. Find me at Stimson's Need. All right. And Clark, do you have anything? Wait, what is my Instagram? Do I have it? What's my Instagram handle? I should know this off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, Stimson's Need. <laughs> If if anything, we can also put it in the description for this, uh, for the, the episode, and then everyone can just click on the link right in the description or look where they're listening. It, absolutely. Yeah, Clark, that, that's probably you, the smart way to go. 
Right, there you go. Uh, I just followed you, so there you go. And no, I don't. I don't have any further questions. It's been a pleasure. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this, actually. So uh, thank you very much for coming on. Hey, it's been great talking to you guys. I'm looking forward to when this goes live. Be sure to send me a link, be so I know to listen and help promote it. There you go. Awesome. We'll do. Yeah, we will. And use yeah the audience member. Like we we had a really good conversation. We're gonna drop all those social medias for uh, Stimson. You can check out all of his stuff. I suggest it. I went into the Instagram. I saw all the cool set pieces. I read some of the uh, the the or the uh, screenplay for the dogs. Pretty interesting stuff. I suggest you go and do the same. And this call was possible uh, by calling in through the number six one five three zero seven. 1037. So if you want to call, leave us a voicemail, or if you want to talk to us, that's how you're going to be able to do it. But remember the old saying here, we don't want stuff that's normal. We want stuff that's effing weird. I'm just an artist trying to make it easy, but selling my album just giggles and shit. Don't tell me how to make my music. I ain't gonna be controlled by you. That's why I have no label company. And that's why I have no label company. Company, company, company. I'm just an artist trying to get by and by. I don't even have to care, I don't try. I'm just an artist, I need to get by. I need some money and a place to and ride. I'm just a fan and I really want you to make a lot of music that I can listen to. But you know, I'm that kind of guy that is such a sex drive. I'm a fan and I love your work. I just want to hear more of your fucking work. I'll fuck you like an animal if you're a girl that is. I am not. I'm clearly a man. By my voice, can't you tell that I'm clearly a man? Well. If you could understand what the lips are coming from my head. I see your lips. What the fuck? Hope you don't sex me in my butt. I don't make sense. Man, I'm just an artist doing my job. Taking mushrooms, painting, writing, all that shit, motherfucker.